gathered together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero, Superman. Superman. The Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, Golden Age Superman, The Superman Fan Podcast, Superman in the Bronze Age, From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. I've got a few things to say about Superman. The Superman Vidcast, the world's best podcast, and Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com. As well as the audio dramas Superman, Last Son of Krypton, and Supergirl, Last Daughter of Krypton from Pendant Audio Production. Join hosts Michael Bradley, John Wilson, Billy Hogan, Charlie Niemeyer, J. David Weeder, Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey, Scott Gardner, Cayman Stoll, I'm Isaac, I'm Adam, Dave Yunus, and co-host Scotty V. At supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Hello everyone, and welcome to episode 47 of Superman in the Bronze Age, which is the second in our four-episode series, Superman in the Bronze Age Presents. My name is Charlie Niemeyer, and before we get to our featured episode, I just want to point out that this episode of Superman of the Bronze Age is sponsored by InStock Trades. A mainstay of the collected edition market, InStock Trades has over 13,000 individual trade paperback, graphic novels, and hardcover titles in stock and ready to ship at great discount prices. An example of this is Volume 1 of Superman Chronicles, which reprints Action Comics 1 through 13, New York World's Fair number 1, and Superman number 1, all in chronological order. The cover price of this book is $14.99, but InStock Trades has it for just $8.99, which is a savings of 40%. Also, most orders ship within 48 hours, and orders over $50 ship for free. You can find them on the web at www.instocktrades.com. Now, this episode of Superman in the Bronze Age Presents brings you an episode of John Wilson's Golden Age Superman. Already a veteran podcaster when he started the show, and both of his previous podcasts were about some bug guy from DC's Marvelous Competition, John decided to do a podcast covering Superman's adventures in the Golden Age of Comics. Unlike Michael Bradley's Thrilling Adventures of Superman, which I'll get to next episode, John covers an entire month of Superman-related stuff in each episode. At first, this meant pretty short episodes, but these days he has to deal with so much Superman-related stuff, like radio shows, daily comic strips, Sunday strip, Superman comics, action comics, and World's Fair every once in a while. He's had to break them up into two parts these days, so that he's not trying to put out five-hour episodes of podcasts. The episode you're about to hear is episode number 13, which was a special episode because it not only covered the introduction of Superman's first recurring villain, but also Superman number one, the very first comic to feature only one character. To celebrate, John invited several other podcasters to the show to help celebrate, including yours truly. So, without further ado, other than the promo I'm going to play first, here is episode 13 of Golden Age Superman. You are cordially invited to attend a podcast that observes the unfolding events of history. 
with me and observe the birth and growth of a legend. From the pages of a ten-cent pulp comic book, to the newspapers, radio program adventures, theatrical films, and more. Witness the dawn of the superhero. Superman. Available on iTunes and at goldenagesuperman.lipson.com. Every legend has a beginning. episode 13 of the show, where we are taking a look at the Superman Adventures, published in the month of May 1939. The stories published in May were Action Comics 13, a month of newspaper strips, and for the first time in all of history, we have an issue of a comic book completely devoted to one character. Superman number one was published this month, and to celebrate, I have with me a cavalcade of some of the world's best and finest all-stars from among the Superman podcasting community. Going in no particular order, we have, from the Superman in the Bronze Age podcast, Mr. Charlie Niemeyer. Hey, everybody. And then returning to the show, after being with me on Episode 7, co-host of From Crisis to Crisis, the Superman podcast, Jeffrey Taylor. <laughs> That's uh, that's how he's saying hello today. He's actually going to be conducting his entire recap through Morse code potato chip crunching. Awesome. <laughs> actually, do know Morse code, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> Next, from the Superman video podcast, we have Cayman Stoll. What's up, guys? And finally, the other co-host and producer of From Crisis to Crisis, as well as producer, co-host, panelist, or contributor to 87 other podcasts, Mr. <laughs> Michael Bailey. Well, I'm actually going to say hi and not be rude. Uh, <laughs> There's nothing rude about crunching potato chips into your microphone. This is why you don't have any friends, Jeffrey. <laughs> no, I don't have any friends because I hate people. <laughs> that too. He's a, he's a humanist, as in he's prejudiced against humans. I prefer to think of myself as an ultra humanite. Ah, yes, because um, yeah, that is going to be our topic for the day, which he kind of comes out of nowhere too. So that's kind of good that that joke came out of nowhere. We have a full show ahead of us. We have lots of books and lots of people to talk about them, and I'm really excited. And I want to thank everyone for being here with me today for this uh, event. So let's not waste any time. I would like to take a moment to get to know everybody real quick. So let's talk about some of the things that we're all doing on the web in Superman land. Michael and Jeffrey, y'all have a show that y'all do. Yeah, um, Jeffrey and I co-host From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast presented by the Superman homepage. 
Uh, we've been doing that since 2009 when I got the idea that it might be fun to go through all of the Superman comics between Man of Steel number one and 86 to Adventures of Superman number 649 and 2006. And then he and made the mistake of asking me to co-host it, and I've been giving him hell ever since. Never knowing that other people would think that such a thing was a good idea as well. So it's, it's, <laughs> it's kind of nice to uh, to be amongst other Superman podcasters because for a while there it was uh, Stephen Neal, Billy Hogan, and us, uh, pretty much. So it's not for a while there, the, the only podcasts that I listened to were Radio KAL and uh, um, Michael's show, Views from the Longbox. Um, and I'm also on Radio KL too. I have the Bailey's Bookshelf segment there um, that I that I've been doing for a couple of years now. So lots of Superman goodness. Lots of Superman goodness. Well, he's um, he's one of your favorite characters, right? Is like somewhere he's my absolute fa- he's my absolute favorite character, uh, and has been since 1987, definitely. Uh, but I have always been a fan of Superman. You know, I was born in '76, so. I was there at Ground Zero for Superman the movie and grew up on the Super Friends, and it was John Byrne's take on the character that really drew me to the comics, and that really started the madness that is all of the Superman stuff that I have in my house at this point and all the comics uh, that are sitting about six feet from me. So he's the best character. He's the first superhero. Uh, He gets a lot of crap, unnecessarily so. Uh, a lot of people don't get the character, uh, and unfortunately, I, I'm of the firm belief that you really can't convince people to like Superman. They're either going to like him or they're not going to like him, and if you try to force it down their throats, it's just going to make the situation worse. So, <laughs> Right. But, but it's all okay because, because Zack Snyder claims that he's going to make Superman relevant again. Well, didn't Brian Singer make the same claim? I'm yeah, sure that he did. He, he, that sounds like something he would say. So, not bashing that film yet. Yet. And um, the From Crisis to Crisis show can be found at the Superman homepage, supermanhomepage.com, and also on the Superman Podcast Network Yep. at www.fortressofbailytude.com slash supermanpodcastnetwork. Um, you mentioned a moment ago having lots of Superman stuff in your room. So on that topic, I want to uh, bring Cayman Stoll to the forefront here. Um, tell us a little bit about the show that you do, Cayman. What I do is the Superman video podcast, which can be found on YouTube. Um, it's something I've been doing for a year now, and it's got a bunch of reviews and stuff. I do reviews of Smallville, reviews of comics, and basically the reason why I'm so like quote-unquote popular is because I actually have the largest Superman collection in the state of Minnesota. And that's just something people love to look at in the videos. And, you know, I love getting comments about it and stuff like that. So I'm just going to mention one thing came in. I kind of like watching your videos because I kind of feel like Donald Trump in New York city, looking at buildings, going, got it, got it, need it, got it, got it, need it, need it. That's awesome. That's awesome. I, did write down the URL for your show on YouTube. Is there a, a more intuitive URL, or is it just youtube.com slash user slash Stokem? Yep, that is the place to find me, and then you can also find me on the Superman Podcast website, which I need to take two sank- seconds and publicly thank Michael Bailey for all the hard work that he has done on the Superman Podcast Network. I think we all owe you a debt of gratitude there, yes. Mr. Bailey. Yes, thank you, Mike. <laughs> no, not a problem, Mike. Just thought it'd be a nice place to have everyone to get together and have a central awesome. location. 
So yeah, he is on the Superman Podcast Network and is also at youtube.com slash user slash stowcam, S-T-O-W-E-K-A-M. Mm-hmm. And um, I am sort of new to the Superman podcasting circles and slightly less new than I am is Mr. Charlie Niemeyer. <laughs> he has the Superman in the Bronze Age show. Let's talk about that for a minute, Charlie. Okay, well, um, basically following – well, actually, it's before them, but kind of following the what Jeffrey and Michael set up, I'm basically covering the era before them, starting in, uh, with Action Comics 393 in uh, October of 71, all the way up to Action 583 in – was it uh, August of 86, I believe? And uh, basically, I'm just going through every week, month by month, getting all the way up to all the way through the Bronze Age. All right, and I am a little bit behind on the, on that show, and I apologize for that. But how uh, how far have you gotten now? Um, the issue, the episode I'm about to do is the first month after uh, the whole Kryptonite Nevermore story finished. All righty. Well, that gives you some idea on all the different uh, wonderful. Superman shows that are out there. The Superman in the Bronze Age is at the Podcast Network, and it's also at supermaninthebronzeage.blogspot.com. Right. And you already know where to find this show because you're listening to it, so we'll skip over that, and let's dive into the books that we have for this episode. Uh, Action Comics 13 was released on or around May 2nd, 1939. It is our first Superman cover in three months and was done by Joe Schuster. We have Superman standing in front of a train with his hand on it as if he's just made it stop. And we see that if he'd taken a few more inches, there would have been problems because the rails are wrecked and the rail bed falls off into flowing water. I don't know if it's a river or a flood. It's kind of hard to tell because the water is right at the bottom of the image. I'm reminded of a scene from the beginning of issue four, whenever he picks up a drunk driver from the front of a train and screams that, you know, you're going to kill us both. It's almost like he's worried that the train's going to hit him. But here he's actually stopping the train. So I guess he got over that fear, figured out that trains won't hurt him. (laughs) I don't know if he's still learning how invulnerable he is through all this. But if you open up the book, on the inside of the cover, there's one of those big messes of ads, including one for ready-to-fly airplanes, because everyone likes to fly model airplanes. And our editor for this book is our usual Vincent A. Sullivan. And, and you can get guns in that ad. Yes, guns are a good thing. Wait, maybe not for kids to have. <laughs> well, they shoot blanks, but still. It's only okay in Texas. Right. <laughs> you won't shoot your eye out anywhere else. Our first page has a half-page splash image of Superman holding a car in the air with one hand while the driver looks out the open door all scared. It's not an image that's lifted directly out of the story, but it is actually on theme this time, which is kind of unusual. Usually this opening splash is sort of random. The logo is the same as last time with the skinny letters and the fancy S, and Superman is by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Our opening caption reads, Friend of the helpless and oppressed is Superman, a man possessing the strength of a dozen Samsons, lifting and rending gigantic weights, vaulting over skyscrapers, racing a bullet, possessing a skin impenetrable to even steel, are his physical assets used in his one-man battle against evil and injustice. So, in the first page of our story, you know, I I should probably explain how we're going to do this. We're going to be recapping this story in a round-robin style. Uh, we're each going to be taking a page and going in a circle. And sort of like whenever you had those um, 
was it the eighties and maybe as late as the early nineties, you had those audio books where you'd like turn the pages of the book as it read to you. You'll so. know when to turn the page when R two D two says this. Exactly. I even had a couple of Superman books that were done like that. What did Superman say? Or did R two D two talk for Superman too? No, it was I think it was just at the sound of the chime. Okay. <laughs> So one day, Clark Kent, ace reporter of the Daily Star, not Planet, as I started to say, ace reporter of the Daily Star, is riding in a cab that is deliberately rammed by another cab. Clark's driver gets out to yell at the offending driver, but gets a fist in his face for his troubles. Clark learns that the guy who hit them belongs to the Cab Protective League, an organization that is trying to victimize the independent companies. That evening, within the privacy of his apartment, Clark Kent discards his false attitude of meekness as he dons a Superman costume. Now he's all excited to head out and tear down the protection racket. So, Superman stands at the window and leaps out into the night. Stopping at a church steeple he, uh, to get his bearings, he leaps again and lands on the roof of the Carlisle Cab Company and watches through the convenient skylight as a man from the Cab Protective League is trying to intimidate the cab company's owner into joining the league. When he refuses, the racketeer, who you can tell is tough because of the toothpick, uh, pulls a gun. Springing into action, Superman crashes through the skylight. Superman hops down between the two and says, pardon, but may I cut in? Pete threatens to shoot Superman, but Superman pinches the barrel of the gun between his thumb and forefinger, mangling it. So Pete prepares to throw a punch, but Superman knocks him out cold. He tells the victim not to worry about the Cap Protective League anymore, and he leaps off into the night with Pete under his arm. All right, so the next page has Superman flying with Captain Pete under his arm. And he's getting kind of like scared and he's saying like, I've got to escape. And so he goes to stab Superman with a knife, but the knife shatters on impact against Superman's chest. Unharmed by his flying, great flying leap deflected. Superman smashes against the nearby building, scaring him, yelling, be careful. Then they both fall towards the street as Superman clings onto a railing. Pete falls to his death and Superman spends a panel telling himself why it's not his fault when you know he's invulnerable to being stabbed and probably could have prevented it and probably could have done something to catch him. Um, back at League headquarters, uh, two goons discuss Pete's quote-unquote suicide and call Carlisle back up to get him to join their little club. Carlisle tells them where to stick it and even threatens to go to the cops, so they head over to bust his head. Superman murder in his eyes steps forward and says that he is just in time Reynolds and his goons start up the car to go take care of Carlisle but their car doesn't move due to Superman holding it by the small rear bumper which I'm not sure would actually work in real life but we'll leave that for later Um, they get out to check the engine but suddenly the car rises off the floor held up in the air by Superman as the racketeers begin shooting at him Superman puts the car back down and tears off the driver's door then sets his sights on the racketeer, so he run, so they run off. Superman hands the crooks sledgehammers and orders them to start smashing up all the cabs while he sits back and yells at them like a drill sergeant to go faster and to use more violence. <laughs> <laughs> then he gets up and throws one of the cabs saying, get the idea? So Reynolds tries to sneak off, but Superman catches him. 
And when Reynolds refuses to smash up all the cabs, uh, Superman threatens to kill him and then across the room. So, next page opens with Superman smashing the car, saying, let's see how you like seeing your car smashed. Then he grabs the racketeer, saying, you've, you've wrecked, you've ruined me, as other people drive off. He's, and then he's pleading to Superman, I did not kill those drivers, I just gave the orders. That makes you equally as guilty, says Superman. Then he has the confession, so he leaves to take care of it, busting out through the wall. And the final panel says, car racketeer received strong sentence. So Reynolds is being transported by car and uses a special cigarette to gas his police captors and escape. Clark Kent, get this, Clark Kent reads about it in the newspaper. <laughs> I just wanted that to settle in for a second. He, he he doesn't hear it on the radio. He doesn't have like some copy boy come in. Hey, Mr. Kent, didn't you know uh, Reynolds escaped by using poison gas? He reads about it in the freaking newspaper. So he changes into Superman. Well, the Daily Star was a much faster paper to print. <laughs> yeah. So he changes into Superman and tracks the car down. Hoping he's guessed correctly, Superman blindly crashes through the roof to find Reynolds sitting in a chair in a practically empty room. Reynolds tells the Man of Steel to turn around, and suddenly Superman finds himself face-to-face with Dr. Evil. I mean, the ultra-humanite. Also in a chair. He tells Superman that he is the head of a vast ring of evil enterprises, revealing that a scientific experiment resulted in him possessing the most agile and learned brain on Earth, and plans to use his genius to dominate the world. Superman sprints towards the humanite, but stumbles amidst a sheet of flame. The ultra-humanite turns the electrical current back off from what Superman was standing on, but uh, realizes that Superman is in fact only unconscious and not dead, even though he was hit with enough electricity to kill 500 men. So they (laughs) they tie him to a table with a circular saw. And attempt to cut him in half. <laughs> we need like a little piano going back in the background here, like an old silent movie. Oh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and as soon as his head hits the, the saw, the saw explodes into a bunch of small pieces and they go flying about the room. Reynolds dies of steals to his throat. Another one barely misses the humanite. Ultra Humanite calls his goons and tells them they have to get out of there. They carry him out on his chair as he's wailing his arms looking like, I don't know, an idiot. And he yells at his goons to burn the place to the ground. As they're standing in the water, safely away from the burning cabin, he tells them that they must hurry and get out of there. Moments later, a plane flying overboard is holding the Humanite and his goons. Surrounded by flames, Superman wakes up and says, I've got to get out of here pronto. He leaps up out out of the flames Runs out of the building and says, Phew, that was almost the end of me because he's invulnerable and almost died from fire. <laughs> Superman spots a mysterious plane and reckons that it is the ultra humanite and just smashes into it, killing everyone on board. The plane crashes, but Superman is not able to find any trace of the ultra humanite. And apparently we are supposed to see the center spread for an important announcement about Superman. I saw that. 
Which and that's the end of the issue. Or the story, at least, not the issue. Yes. So, yeah, um, that Ultra Humanite just kind of comes out of nowhere, doesn't he? Yes. A little bit, yes. (laughs) He does not look like the modern version at all. No. Although he is white. Yeah. And apparently his superpower is mysteriously he can grow hair. Uh, and then have it disappear in the no in, in, yes. on on the one page uh, before they stra- after they strap him to the uh, yeah, after they page, strap Superman to the chair he's in that panel eighty five right and there's even one panel where he's suddenly redheaded in the back yeah that's what I meant he can grow hair and then it's gone right so. and he can change it because some of the others he's got white hair. For those of you who don't have not read the issue, the Ultra Human Eye is is a white, mostly bald guy. He has a little bit of Picard fringe going on around the back, and he's they call it a paraplegic when your legs don't work. Yes, um, yeah. That's he's it. wearing a white scientist smock-looking thing that, like you know, folds over the front and buttons down the left, the right hand side, and he's sitting in a wheelchair, or at least a chair for most of the issue. So yeah, singing he's... science fiction, double feature, <laughs> and then he gets up to do the time warp. Exactly. And it's like you can walk, faker. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the first in the long line of bald white villains that Superman is going to fight. Yeah, but he won't be bald and white for long. No, he'll eventually turn into a monkey. Long. Well, he has, he's kind of got a really interesting. Uh, history in that later on, much later, so I don't feel feel like I'm spoiling ahead uh, for the people who just don't want to be spoiled on stories that are 70 years old. He eventually transplants his brain into the body of showgirl Dolores Winters. Yes. Uh, and that it stays there through most of like World War II. Uh, and after that, if you uh, if you read Legends of the DC Universe from the late 90s, James Robinson wrote a story that was kind of an update of the ultra-humanite as Dolores Winters. Uh, and then at one point, put his brain in the body of a monkey. Big old white ape. Um, it seemed like a good idea at the time. Yeah, it's kind of weird. It, it, <laughs> I think James Robinson handled the character much better in uh, what is now called JSA The Golden Age, where he... <laughs> is one of the most awesome villains ever in that story. So, Yeah, he only has about a half dozen Golden Age appearances, and then he's gone until the All-Star Squadron Yay. picks him up. It's uh, He's an interesting character, but he does kind of come out of nowhere because it's a gangster story, and then suddenly there's a supervillain. Um, <laughs> so let's see. Who wants to go first? Charlie, you were last in the uh, intro, so uh, why, don't we, uh, why don't you talk about some of the thoughts you had on the story first? All right. Uh, well, um, are we doing like pa- page by page kind of thing, or yeah? If you just want to go through the story, or however you have your notes ordered. All right. Um, well, I had a I had one thing where I actually um, compared a little bit between uh, the original that you gave us and then the um, reprint in the Chronicles. Oh yeah, did you see some differences? Yeah. Well, not huge differences, but like on the cover, if you look at the train, it's got all these white stuff to kind of make it look reflective and shiny. And they don't put any of that on the uh, reprint for some reason. Lazy colorist. Exactly. And uh, like page one, they have the curtain at the at the bottom of page one, and they actually switched around the colors in the reprint. Just small stuff. But um, otherwise, other than that, um, on page one, the first thing I noticed was that um, he's ta- he he looks like he's just leisurely, slowly changing. 
instead of the really quick change that we're all used to. He's just sitting there on the bed, taking off his shoes, uh, when Clark's switching over to Superman. Right. Well, to this, be fair, I, I, I never change my clothes the same way twice. Of course. <laughs> there is that. I do kind of kind of like it, though. I think um, there was a similarly toned scene in Action Comics 7, uh, the circus issue, because there he's just kind of in his apartment in front of a mirror changing clothes, you know, just, just normal. And there are a couple of panels. I don't know if the, the other one's maybe in the Superman issue or maybe it's in the newspaper strips, but I remember there being a couple ones we talked about that we're going to be talking about where he's just sitting on his bed, you know, changing his clothes, being normal instead of, you know, busting into an alley and whipping everything off super fast or, or changing in a phone booth, which Superman actually never does. And, um, you know, it's just, it's just very normal and he's in his apartment. I just like, I like that about it. Yeah. And I like how in the golden age, other than I think one or two stories, it seems like most of the time he just actually changes in his apartment. Right. At least once. And then I had, let's see, uh, on page two, I was kind of confused why, maybe it was because that's the cab company that owns the guy that got crashed into on the first page, but it, I thought it was kind of weird that after he hops to that church, he just kind of looks around and says, oh, there it is, and just happens to pick the cab company that happens to have the guy from the Protection League messing with them. I don't know. It doesn't really explain why the Maybe there was a sign outside that said Cab Protection League. That could be. Because <laughs> later in the story, whenever the cops are going, they're like, let's go to the Cab Protection League. That's where they are. It's the Cab Protection League secret base. Right. Ah, That's what the yes. Dion sign outside said. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, on, then, on, on page eight, the calling car K7, go to the Cab Protective League garage, residents report disturbance. I, I guess that's just the sign outside. Weird. Okay, never mind then. But, um, <laughs> it's we- it is weird. <laughs> yes, uh, page three. I like. I thought it was funny. The um, Superman goes up and s- uh, squishes the barrel of the gun. So then the guy think. Uh, so then what's his name? Pete thinks he can like punch him, and that's going to do anything to him. I would that, at that point, if that was me, I'd probably turn around and run like hell. It's it's the George Reeves effect. Ah, okay. <laughs> You know, they they they, f- they empty their their six shooter into Superman, and that doesn't work, so they throw the gun at him. Yeah, yeah. I, I was gonna say, yeah, they, they they don't just stop firing after the first three or four don't work. They empty the whole clip just in case. <laughs> yeah. Well, you never know. You might have missed the first five times. I I always saw that. You know, not to defend being snarky, because uh, God knows I love to be snarky, but I always saw that as. You know, they shoot them once, it doesn't work. They shoot them twice, and at that point, you know, their mind is trying to process the fact that the man in front of them has bullets bouncing off of him. So they just start firing more and more and more. It's like when something inanimate won't move for me, and I keep trying to move it, keep trying to move it, and then I start beating on it, and then I have to go away for a little while and (laughs) my quiet place. Well, it's it's that old adage, shoot me once, shame on you. (laughs) (laughs) exactly um on page four i I thought it was cool that um even superman's leaping but the fact that um when pete stabbed him with the knife it didn't hurt superman but it messed up his trajectory so they ended up crashing into the side of the building i read that and the only thing i could think is that whenever he stabbed superman superman was actually lifting off right then 
Because theoretically, if they're sailing through the air, they can do whatever they want to, and they're just going to kind of keep on going at basically the same trajectory. Well, that's what I was thinking. I don't. I wasn't sure if just because of the way Superman shifts his body, maybe it kind of messed up with the f- amount of friction. Is streamlined. I don't know. But if he's just pushing off of the roof with his foot right as the guy stabs, then that could mess things up. That could. It, it looked the way it looked though. It just kind of looked like it was. They were already in the air because he's still. It's hard to tell without a background. Yeah, backgrounds are a good thing. Yeah, and then um, page six. I don't. I'm not. I don't know much about cars, but as small as that rear bumper was, I figured that um, if it's trying to go forward at full speed and Superman is just holding it in place, that the bumper would just kind of pop off. That sounds logical to me. Yeah, maybe that's just me. And then um, page seven, Reynolds has a goon with him, but after panel 47, we just don't see him anymore. He doesn't. He's smashing cars. Oh, he's so just Superman sad. <laughs> <laughs> he's still the whole the whole story. He's just still smashing cars even after the cops show up. Like, um, I like that. You're going to do what he says until he says stop. <laughs> exactly. Um, page nine. Uh, they they just mentioned it's a mysterious gas, but they don't actually have a name for it or anything. But then again, I guess Ultra Humanite could have kept that from him. And uh, it's it's poison gas. Well, yeah, of course. <laughs> And then, We're going to uh, come back to this idea when we get to the newspaper strips. Oh, okay. I thought I, I thought it was mysterious gas. It yeah. was. It's that's what it says in the comic. Oh, okay. okay. It's a mysterious gas. I'm sorry. And then um, uh, that was yeah, that was about it. Other than um, I guess Ultra Humanite's pretty much Superman's first big recurring villain because he's this is yeah Luther hasn't shown up yet, so this is his big his first big villain, even though he doesn't get to do a whole lot in this issue. And he actually fades away before Luthor comes into the comic. So I almost feel like this is a bit of a proto-Luthor idea. Um, yeah, because Luthor's pretty much the same, except he can walk. <laughs> well, he starts out as a war criminal. But that's that's probably a conversation for, for like three months from now. But I guess it doesn't really matter. Um, but he does eventually turn into this mad scientist kind of thing. Cayman, what, what, what were some of your thoughts on this issue? Well, you guys covered a lot of things, but like starting from the beginning, I don't know. I kind of had a problem with Clark thinks that those people deliberately hit them, but yet he just lets them leave. I'm just like, okay. Like, as opposed to uh, suiting up and going after him as Superman? Or? Well, no, but just like stopping and being like, hey, what are you doing? Like, what's going on, man? Like, you don't need to be doing that. Okay. And maybe throw a punch or two and call it a day. I thought you were about to start doing like Stewie does to Brian when he's <laughs> not going to uh, run into the thing. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> yeah. I started thinking the same thing. It was funny. Uh, on page six, I like the throwback to um, – on panel 43, I like the throwback to Action Comics 1 with him lifting up the car. That was the first thing I thought of when I saw that was when he like picked up the car and he had the people in front of him was Action Comics number one. The throwback yeah, to that. Cool. Well, not, and, and everyone's kind of freaking out like they do on the cover of that book, too. Yep, that's what I thought. Um, I know that Superman's morality wasn't as strong as it was during this time, but I still have a problem with him just letting those people die in the end, saying they got what they deserved. Yeah. Um, yeah. I kind of had a problem with that. And then, no, no, when the like, guy stabs him, I'm sorry, and he falls and he says he got the fate that he deserved. Kind of had a problem with that. Um, but th- this was before his morality was as strong as it was. It was before. What was his name? Michael, you probably know who I'm talking about. The guy who came in with the – and he was like, comics are bad. And what was oh, his Wortham. name? Oh, Wortham. Wortham. Yes, that was his name. 
So this was before that whole ordeal happened. Okay, this this one's funny. Page seven, panel fifty-three. Superman looks like he is doing some kind of dance. <laughs> Whether yes, it's it does. cha cha or he looks like he's doing some kind of dance, and it made me laugh. I believe I that's the hand jive. That's what it looks like. He just got done clapping, and the guy's just <laughs> thrown back by it. And then I thought it was the hokey pokey. I well, that is it. what it's all about. That that's what it's all about. Um, I think the thing with the with the humanite was supposed to be like a huge reveal. Like you, you think, yeah, just like one of those moments. Like you turn around and then he's right there, which is exactly what happened. Wow, I didn't even realize that. But um, yeah, they got some pretty high tech chairs. If you look at panel seventy one of those people that they're tying them down, and that's a nice green wooden chair. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's pretty legit. Oh, I see what you're talking about now with the hair color. That's bad. Is it preserved in the reprints? Is he still redheaded in the back in, in the reprints y'all have? Just in that one panel, yeah. Just in that one panel? Wow, that's uh-huh. funny. All yeah. the rest of them, they, they just found, leave they it found blank. They lost it. Yeah, then on panel 93, he like barely has any hair. But um, I love the whole thing of Superman on the sawboard. I just think that's really cool. Except, where did his cape go? Like, did his cape fall off? Because it's not... When he's on the sawboard, he's not wearing his cape. So did they just no, not draw right. it? What's going on with that? There is no cape. And then he takes time to put it on before he goes after them in the plane, I guess. Does he really? I'm guessing. No, it's not on in page 90, but then it's on in page ni- or panel 91. I'm sorry. When he gets up off the sawboard, he doesn't have it on, but then as he's going out of the building, he has well, it on. And the, and the caption, it says, Up, up, leaps Superman out of reach of the hungry blaze. There's a blank space there. It should be saying, but he grabs his cape and ties it back on along the way. <laughs> but we never, saw, we never saw the cape taken off. That's yeah, I don't know either. All right. It's a, just, it's a backup cape. It comes out of the compartment whenever he flies. He called yeah. his mom. Mom, I need a new cape. <laughs> I think my favorite thing in the entire issue, though, is panel 87, where that one guy is using all of his might to lift the humanite in that chair, and he's just waving his arms around like, let's go, come on. <laughs> it's like, I don't know. That just that just makes me laugh. It's a good issue overall. It's a good issue. What's the important announcement in the Summer Spread? Does anyone have that? I do. I do have that. Yeah. I can spoil it. I, I have I have a note for it as we're going through the issue, though. Okay. Um, so we'll, 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 we'll get to it. It's really huge and unexpected. Let's go with... Um, it has to do with Rosenbaum coming back to Smallville. Right. That is actually exactly <laughs> what it's talking about. And it's actually, actually Comics 13. <laughs> it's actually a spoiler for the finale, so Jeffrey's not going to want to Jeffrey, listen. Jeffrey, you can't, you can't listen. Hey, 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 quiet. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, let's let's go with uh, Michael uh, next. Michael, what what were your thoughts on this book? My, my first note is actually kind of a quote unquote serious one, uh, as in I'm not trying to poke fun at the uh, at the things going on. I I have a lot of affection for the way Joe draws gangsters. You know, his toughs look like really unsavory people, and I always kind of like to see that that's the people Superman is going up against because it kind of just it just makes you feel better about him taking him down. Um, this is just when Superman or when Clark or however you want to call it because he's not in the costume but he's not wearing glasses is uh, cab protectively a eh? sounds like the sort of setup I like to break down. This is classic classic Golden Age Superman. This is the champion of the weak and the oppressed. This is the guy that is just looking for something else to go bust up because he feels it's an injustice somehow. Uh, I always got the sense that he 
didn't do anything when the cab crashed into him because he's he's Clark Kent. He's playing meek and mild. You know, you know, it it wouldn't do for him to at that point stand up and you know start giving the guy you know crap because that would kind of blow his cover and the secret identity was all important here. Uh, on the second page, I love the shots of Superman at night. Uh, I like the fact that he has his own lighting source for most of the panels. That, that's kind of cool. <laughs> I love the fact that he pinches the gun and it's it's just impeding. <laughs> um, Is that a George Reeves gag? Does he do a lot of gun ben- gun pinching? Or am I'm I making that remember. up? It's, it's been a while since I've gone through... He does do a lot of gun pinching, yeah. He, yeah, he does. Pinch. I think he does more he, like he crushes the gun. He like takes it and crushes yeah. the whole thing, though. Instead of just pinching the end, he'll take the whole thing and crush it. And then sometimes he does do the just bends the barrel, but he does he that on rifles. He doesn't usually just pinch the end of it like he does here, though, from what I remember. Now, a lot of people, myself included, like to kind of criticize. Uh, current DC comics because of the excessive violence and blood and all that. Um, this is a pretty damn violent book. I mean, <laughs> we, uh, on panel 30, we got a guy landing neck first onto the pavement. And then later in the story, a dude catches a piece of metal in the neck and they don't even try to hide that. It's Reynolds dies a horrible death as one of the steely fragments pierces his throat. Exactly. <laughs> well, Lord. that'll leave a mark. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. The ultra-humanite showing up in this, I'd never read this issue before preparing for this, for coming on to this episode. It is so random that he shows up. There is no lead-up to his, you know, to, to there being a guy in charge over Reynolds. You know, it, it's just it's just kind of weird. It's just like, I'm not worried. I work for this guy. Well, where the hell did this guy show up from? Oh, it's the ultra-humanite. And it's not that it's bad, but it does kind of show the flying-by-the-seat-of-their-pants storytelling that, the, that Siegel and Schuster were doing in the early days of Superman, where they were probably kind of making up as they go along. You know, I can almost imagine, you know, he has the great build-up to Superman taking down, you know, the cab racketeers, and then it's like, oh crap, I've got a couple more pages to fill. Ultra humanite. I was thinking the same thing. It's like it's like two different stories. Um, it, it's not a bad thing necessarily. I'm not criticizing Siegel or his or his writing style because I think especially these very, very early Superman stories have such a lot of raw power to them that I really don't want to pick on them because, you know, this is the stuff that kids gravitated towards and and grabbed onto. And eventually it was the stuff that DC said, Superman can't do this anymore because he's got to be more like Batman. So I, 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 I can sit here and poke fun. I can poke fun at the mysterious gas from the cigarette I can poke fun at the fact that why didn't they just roll down the damn windows? Um, <laughs> really? I'm feeling kind of dizzy. Let me roll this down, and that would just completely ruin his plan. Right. <laughs> uh, I like the fact that when Clark reads about a escaped felon and using poison gas, that he is still relaxed enough to have his legs up on the desk. That's And it looks like they're not even his legs. It, it, <laughs> This looks like I don't know why it's just a very awkward picture. Um, the Superman on the 
I can't remember where I first saw this panel, but it was in an article on like the history of Superman. Uh, that bottom panel, uh, panel 93, uh, where it breaks. But it also made me think of, even though it hadn't happened yet, uh, one of the very, uh, either episodes 102 or 103 of the George Reeves series, where he has to rescue one uh, either Lois or Jimmy from a similar fate. And the thing spinning, this thing spinning, he holds his hand out, and there's this like awkward cut, and suddenly it has no blades anymore. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was Perry that was tied down, that was actually Perry White. Um, that episode was directed by George Reeves, I believe. Um, Interesting. If I'm remembering the uh, introduction Jack Larson gave the episode that Thanksgiving, I watched it. Uh, but it, 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 it's so awesome, though, that at the end of the story, not caring about the two pilots or the ultra humanite, he just crashes into the plane. And then he can't find it's like strange, I can't find any trace of the ultra humanite, but man, these pilots are all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we hadn't really talked about the fact that he just killed these guys. Yeah, he just he just obliterated them. I mean, you can kind of say uh that you know, that the guy that suicided himself in the beginning of the uh at the beginning of the story, you know, Superman might not have been responsible for that, mainly because he probably, he, you know, he can't fly at this point, really. Uh, he's more doing the leaping thing, so he really can't. You could argue that Superman couldn't control what was going on because he's just kind of leaping to the ground and suddenly this guy is kind of like worming his way around and trying to stab him. So maybe that wasn't Superman's fault. But this definitely is. He deliberately leaps into the air and positions himself to ram into the plane and kill these people. Right. Um, so yeah, Superman never killed. <laughs> Jeffrey, what are your thoughts on page four? We we've talked about how this guy tried to stab Superman and that's what caused him to fall to his death. I was actually pretty confused about what it is that he was even trying to do based on the drawings. I didn't even know that he was trying to stab him there until it was explained on the next page. It is very confusing art. Like, you can hardly see the knife in the first panel. It looks like they're just, like, little poofs of smoke on the next panel. It, it's really hard to tell what's going on. It, I didn't know if he was trying to shoot him or if he was just trying to hit him or 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 what the deal was. And then on the next page, is, it's explained that he was trying to stab Superman. And I really wouldn't have even known that. So, well, what are you going to do? Uh, the following <laughs> page, page five, Superman is officially responsible for this guy's death. Just wanted to point that out. Obviously, we do get the one later on as well. Um, page six. Oh, this was hilarious when he runs into those, uh, let's see, is it page six? Yeah. He, he runs into those, uh, cab guys and is holding the car above his head. And they're like, who went, who are you? And what does Superman say? Oh man, you wouldn't believe it. He says, someone who dislikes you thoroughly. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, you didn't. <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> he, he, he doesn't really know how to insult people. I, I He's guess. not quite on par with Spider-Man yet. No. <laughs> no. Definitely okay, no. So, I'm your worst nightmare stuff coming from him. <laughs> I am the terror that flaps in the night. 
on on page seven. Okay, Superman has these bad guys smash up all of their cabs. Here's the problem with that. Um, people drive those for their living. Like that's their livelihood. Not just these guys. Other people who are just cab drivers. And now Superman is responsible for put the, putting them out of work. Just right. wanted to point that out. D- don't they work for a crooked organization? Yeah, but you know they they live off of tips and their cab fares. They are now out of work. So so we should feel bad for the thugs. Well, they're not thugs; they're cab drivers. Did you see the cab driver drive into somebody at the beginning of the issue? <laughs> oh, that was one guy. It's not all. Oh of yeah, them. it's just the one guy. the re- The rest of them are all like you know, you know, you know, the salt of the earth. The the, the people you want to feel bad for. I don't buy they that. Are. For a they are. They're just trying to bring some bread home for their wives and babies. These are the kinds of men who will work for somebody who's going to turn himself into a monkey. <laughs> With suspenders. Okay, well... You know, those pants aren't going to keep themselves up. Exactly. Gravity does its thing. It's hard to hard to explain. Uh, okay, yeah, page 10, first appearance of Ultra Humanite. My, my note is that it's it's a shame that there is zero build-up to him. He's just suddenly there, but we've already pretty much talked about that. And uh, page 12, it, as they're leaving Superman in the burning building, they're like, he can't survive fire. I'm just thinking to myself, dude, he just survived a whirling saw blade to the head. <laughs> He'll be fine. <laughs> and uh, p- page 13, which is the, the last page, I just want to point out here that he is not flying. He's running on clouds. Yes. Which is a lot... Which is a lot better than him walking on sunshine. Whoa, oh. <laughs> hey, it's time to feel good. He's descending there. Where is he descending from? He just from leaped the, really, the really cloud. high into the air. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm above the plane's cruising altitude, and I'm coming down now. That's well, he was on a really bad trip. <laughs> Men weren't meant to ride with clouds between their knees. Well, I had um, I had a few notes that hadn't quite gotten addressed yet. One sort of random note on the very first page in the splash page, the car looks weird. Like it's not entirely there. Like we just have one side of it, but there should be more car like behind the logo or something. It just I don't think it looks entirely complete. It bothered me when he's first changing his clothes there at the bottom. It doesn't look to me like he's changing clothes. It looks like he's lounging. Just kind of, you know, hanging out in his bedroom, sitting there thinking about cab protective leagues. But I, like I said earlier, I do like the realism with the whole changing at home thing. It just didn't really look like he's there. <laughs> yeah, on page, end of page two going into page three, I love how he jumps through the skylight directly over the humans. So that all the falling <laughs> shards of glass are right there sprinkling amongst them on the first panel of the next page. You know, just in case, you know, punching wasn't going to work, now they have glass to dodge as well. Very, very important thing, though, about page three. This is the first appearance of the cape symbol. Oh, okay. Up till now, Superman has not had a symbol on his cape. And although the symbol on the front doesn't always get enough detail in this particular issue... I read somewhere that Paul Cassidy is actually the one who introduced the cape symbol as he was inking. 
I don't have a credit for him inking this issue on Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics, but I'm going to think that maybe he did uh, ink this particular issue. In any case, this is the first appearance of the cape symbol, and that's very exciting because that's basically the, the only major element of Superman's outfit that wasn't there yet, and now it is. Yay! So yeah, important safety tip, don't try to stab a guy when he's leaping through the air with you. Um, <laughs> I did ask the wife, and she says that Superman's liable here, so I'm going to have to add this to the Superman death count, I think, since we all seem to agree that he really could have saved him if he had just tried. Yep, I'll agree what are we? That. Just out of curiosity, what are we up to now? A definite three deaths that Superman's caused, and a possible three more. And that's going to increase as we get as we go through the issue here. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, and and the, the 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 possibles are just ones where you can't quite tell on panel that the person died. It's not explicitly stated. Although if he, they did die, it would definitely be a, uh, Superman's fault. Okay. Um, page seven. Okay. At the bottom panel, uh, the two panels, he picks up that guy, shakes him around a bit, and then throws him over the car. I'm thinking that if I were thrown that high into the air, I'd be kind of messed up after I landed. Yes. Not if you were a drawing. Oh, <laughs> this is true. On the other hand, I just noticed that apparently it made his hair turn blue. The man he's uh, wrestling with? Yeah, he, he's wrestling with Reynolds, who has white hair on page 7, and on page 8, he's got black hair or blue hair. Yes, I actually <laughs> I forgot. I did write a note about that. Some people get so scared their hair turns white. This guy was so scared his white hair turned black. There you go. <laughs> I just reminds noticed that. Reminds me of that line from Ghostbusters. I have seen shit that'll turn you white. <laughs> yes. Um, we t- already talked about the cops being told to go to the Cab Protective League garage, like there's a sign out front. Cab Racketeer is misspelled on the newspaper headline. It's a, oh, it's apparently it's a Cab Racketer. It's a racketer. They can't be bothered. Perry <laughs> White isn't the managing editor yet, so. Oh, that's true. Yeah, got that. He has the human spell check. Uh, a lot of people don't know that, but that was one of the weird powers he got in the Silver Age. You know, super cigars, <laughs> spell check, all that. Kind of stuff. Cigarettes with mysterious gas. Yeah, it's it's, it's called cigarette smoke. <laughs> It'll pretty much kill you anyways. <laughs> So normally whenever the bad guy is finally revealed in a story, he's, he's doing something menacing, maybe standing in the shadows or, or approaching you or, or you know, drawing a weapon or doing something where it looks like he's going to pose some sort of threat. The ultra human eye is sitting in the other room um, past the doorway in a wooden chair, kind of hunched over, grinning at Superman in the background. And it, it's, it's not just that there's no buildup. It's a really anticlimactic reveal. It's just, what the, turn around, and there's some old guy, like, sitting about 50 feet away, hunched over in a chair. And he's not going anywhere. He's just kind of sitting there. So, yeah. I thought that was kind of funny. He also says, you have interfered frequently with my plans. And I was trying to figure out when. Like, was he behind the slums? Uh, was he causing crimes at the World's Fair? He is responsible for urban blight. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe the chain gang violence was his fault, too. I don't know. I'm thinking he had everything to do with that football team fiasco. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yes. A.K.A. 
the story that really wasn't supposed to be a Superman story, but we shoehorned it in anyways. Damn it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, hey, it's the fourth issue. Let's do one where he's not in the costume at all. Well, it could be worse. Mr. Mixius Pedelec could have been in the stands messing with him and, you know, betting on the game. Creep. (laughs) Because that's what I want to see out of Mr. Mixius Pedelec Euro trash. Thanks a lot. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) I'm so emo, I see the rainbow as shades of black. (laughs) On page 12... It's really hard to look diabolical whenever your henchman is having to carry you around like a bride over the threshold. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) I'm going to come and get you. Penfold, pick me up. (laughs) Get me out of here at once. (laughs) and, And you sit there when you should be running because you just can't believe that this guy just picked the dude up and is coming after him. It's like suddenly he's singing. It's like that scene in The Simpsons where Bart and Lisa can't fight each other, but they just start swinging their arms so that the other will walk into it. Oh, jeez. <laughs> there's, there's an anecdote. I don't know how many of y'all watch Doctor Who, but there are these uh, creatures on there that are basically one-man tanks. They're called Daleks, and... In the old '60s episodes, the, the, they were, there's a guy actually in there driving it around for the for the show, but there's no latch on the inside. They have to be opened from the outside. So they would take lunch breaks, and there were days when the entire cast and crew would leave set, and the Daleks would still be in their cases, wishing they were able to go to lunch. And uh, that just kind of reminds me of this guy here. He's like, you know, the the, the place is burning down. Or he's about to. It's not burning down yet, but Superman's getting away, and, and he's like, just come get me, please. We have to get out of here. Carry they did away. the same thing to Kenny Baker during the filming of uh, Star Wars. Oh, yeah, I've heard about that, too. Yeah, I was just going to say that. We left him on the uh, swamp set or something on <laughs> yeah, like, Empire Strikes Back. No! <laughs> places to get left, <laughs> In too. this thing! <laughs> R2-D2 just doesn't move himself. <laughs> now that he really moved R2, he just swung the head. These guys actually had little like a uh, bicycle style operated things inside. It's kind of crazy. Um, the scared of a villain that if you just run upstairs, you're fine. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Exterminate! Oh crap! <laughs> <laughs> Superman thinks the fire is going to get him at the end of the page. The only thing I can think of here, if we're going to have an in the in the box explanation, is that he doesn't know his own invulnerability levels yet. Like he hasn't stood in front of a gun to test it until, you know, the day he first gets shot at. And that, he, make, that makes a lot of sense, though, when you really think about where he is as a character at this point in the history of, of, of Superman. I mean, why would you voluntarily try to play with fire? Right. I mean, there's a... In, in the the second issue of the Superboy comic book that was based on the syndicated series from 1988, you get to actually see the first time someone shoots at him... And he realizes that he's invulnerable to that because he's really scared and he flinches. And, you know, when you're out on the farm uh, and they did this in Smallville numerous times uh, throughout the first four seasons where it's just like, holy crap, I just survived that. You know? Right. And, and, and I kind of like seeing that. So maybe, you know, I'm tough. But, you know, fire is a little different than a projectile. I mean, you know, it's, it is kind of more destructive when you really think about it. 
uh, of what it can, you know, you know, it burns you. It doesn't, you know, yeah, my hide is tough and, you know, not uh, nothing but a bursting shell can pierce it, though. How did he figure that one out? <laughs> but there's something other than that than being engulfed in flames where eventually maybe it would start to eat at even your invulnerable hide. Right. Or at the very least cost him a costume. Yes. I like mysterious and vulnerable golden age costume. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the, the lava is about to pour on you, Lois. Here, let me just get my cape over here. You're, you're fine now. <laughs> they had a really cool explanation for the costume at the end of Tom DeHaven's book, uh, uh, It's Superman, which if, if y'all haven't read it yet, I cannot recommend it enough. If you like Smallville and what they do with the character on Smallville, I think you'll appreciate this novel. And if you like Lex Luthor being evil for the sake of being evil, you're going to really like this novel. <laughs> <laughs> well, just um, just to wrap up the story here, the only other note that I had was um, the deaths in the plane because the, the Ultra Humanite had three henchmen in flight suits that we saw uh, running from the cabin. So I'm assuming that they're all in the plane. And since we find out next issue that the Ultra Humanite is still alive, I'm going to assume that he's the only one that survived. Since wait, whoa, whoa, whoa! Spoiler warning. Yeah, I'm sorry, but he's still <laughs> no, alive. <I'm> <laughs> okay. <laughs> so um, if we count a knife wound uh, fall on your neck guy as being Superman's fault, we have a death count here of six definite deaths, and uh, I think I may have misspoken earlier, but there are four. Uh, deaths that have occurred in previous stories that um, might not be deaths, uh, depending on how you interpret the scene. So, yeah, Superman's a murderous bastard in these uh, early issues, and it's pretty uh, pretty awesome. And unless anyone else has any other thoughts or notes they want to share, that brings us to the end of this particular story. That's uh, all I've got. I, I, I agree with um, – I think it was Cayman said, I like the story. It's just – it's – it's strange in the way that it was structured. I do have to wonder if maybe there was some sort of, uh, oh crap, I have to stretch this out for four more pages type of thing going on. Um, so he's like, hey, let's just make up a new character real quick and throw him in there. Right. I don't know. It's weird. And I haven't read issue 14 yet as we're recording this to find out how the Ultra Humanite is introduced again there or reintroduced there. So it'll be interesting to see how it compares. So yeah, this 13-page story was reprinted in Superman, the Action Comics Archives, Volume 1, hardcover from 1998, and the Superman Chronicles, Volume 1, trade paperback from 2006. So after Superman, and the little tease about the centerfold, and it's not Lois Lane in a bikini, the second feature to this issue of Action Comics is Scoop Scanlan, five-star reporter by Will Ellie, which is six pages long. Scoop and Rusty are worried they might lose their jobs because they can't find a story anywhere. Well, lucky for them, they find a man lying dead in a front lawn turned to stone. It's a nice way to spend your Sunday. Oh, thank uh, God. <laughs> Turns out there were several men who brought rare jewels back from India and are now dying off one by one, turning to stone. The final survivor thinks the jewels are cursed. Scoop and Rusty investigate and find that the one member of the expedition who had been lost in India and thought dead is actually alive and poisoning everyone and stealing their jewels, giving them a chemical compound that turns their bodies to stone. 
he should really patent that and make some money. Um, Scoop and Rusty catch the guy and are glad that they will still have their jobs at the paper. And ironically, this is also the final strip of Scoop Scanlan to appear in Action Comics. So I'm wondering if maybe they didn't get to keep their jobs at the paper after all. Um, <laughs> How could two such obviously great and endearing characters suddenly just go away like that? <laughs> Well, it, it's kind of surprising, too, because the character had been showcased in New York World's Fair comics, which was you know still being sold at the World's Fair even now. So whenever those leftover copies were sent to the newsstands, however long it took to do that, he would actually no longer be available in his own book to read. Um, but in any case, Will Ellie did leave DC at this point. He had been doing some other strips for the other three titles that DC was putting out, and they all ended at the same time. Six years later, Ellie would resume production of Scoop Scanlon's strips, but this time it was through Terrific Comics and then later in Catman Comics, both published by Holyoke. So Scoop Scanlon is one of the few DC characters that started out with DC and went somewhere else instead of DC acquiring them you know, as, as it grew and bought companies. I was going to say some stuff about Will Ellie, but I really couldn't find any information on him. I know he did some Green Hornet newspaper strips, but I don't know if he was a common artist there or if he just did a few. Um, but he did come back to DC in the early 50s and did a lot of detective stuff before moving over to sci-fi and horror. And he had a several-year stint on Rip Hunter Time Master. I don't know if any of you is a Rip Hunter fan or not. I have never read word one of his stories. In any case, this is the first long-running strip in action comics to be canceled. So that's sort of a landmark for this particular issue. We'll have a new title for to fill his place next month. The third feature in the issue is Pep Morgan by Gene Baxter, six pages long. We're continuing our story from last issue, having saved its dictator's life twice and seen the gun-running Captain Sindra jailed. Pep takes leave of Lateria, a South American republic. He says goodbye to the dictator, with whom he's all buddy-buddy, and he boards the ship. Sindra is in jail and realizes the ship and harbor is his last chance to leave for America for two months. So he tricks a guard with the whole, oh, I'm sick, routine. He busts out and he gets a job on the ship's crew, not realizing that Pep Morgan, who put him in jail, is actually on this ship as well. He does lead the crew in a mutiny against the officers, but Pep hides during that whole time, and he later jumps out to help free the officers and take the mutineers down. And he has radioed for help in the meantime, and by the time they're all done, a U.S. destroyer comes alongside for the prisoners. And although I usually don't like Peck Morgan, this is actually one that I can enjoy. We then have a two-page text piece called Test Flight by Lieutenant Cummings. It's mostly a humdrum piece about a guy taking a new plane up for a test flight. But the last third or so is made a little bit more interesting by the fact that his landing gear is broken. So the pilot locks the controls of the plane while in the air and climbs out to fix the gears, and he's hanging on to the plane for dear life. It's, it's not a great story, but it's not terrible. The fourth feature is Marco Polo, illustrated by Sven Elven. Last time, the Polos were captured by a band of slavers. Marco sent the chief sprawling with a smashing blow, but was set upon by the bandits. The cheetah, Marco's pet, seeing his master's plight, joined the melee, and now, despite the cheetah's efforts, the Polo caravan is captured, they're all taken to an auction block and sold to separate owners into slavery. But in the end, Marco gives his new owner ten times the money he paid for Marco and escapes. And that's to be continued from there. But I'm thinking that if I had captured a guy and I was going to take him to slavery, the first thing I would do is check his pockets to see if he has any money. Evidently, Marco's guys didn't do that because he still has a whole lot of jail in his pockets. 
We then have the notice mentioned at the end of the Superman story, the advertisement that takes up the middle two pages. So if you open your copy of Action Comics 13 to the center of the book, you will find a two-page spread printed sideways, so you have to turn the book um, 90 degrees poster style. And it's an advert for Superman number one, which was being published this same month, and which we're going to talk about in just a few minutes. And it has the cover in all of its glory, and it says, Here it is, boys and girls, a big, complete Superman book you'll want to keep. 64 pages, all in color, of Superman's daring exploits, on sale May 18th. Containing a complete detail of how you can become a member of the Superman of America. We know you'll want to join. They're very, very proud of this in the advertisement. It says, chock full of action, throws an adventure with a big full-color picture of Superman suitable for framing. Be sure to get your copy. So that is the mysterious middle advert that was discussed at the end of the uh, Superman story in Action Comics 13. And then we have Tex Thompson. The fifth feature is by Bernard Bailey, running 10 pages. The synopsis of last time says, having left the interior of China for the present. But Tex and Bob weren't in China last issue. They were on an island. But in any case, they are now back stateside, and we find them at the home of Colonel Rushmore, whom the boys met on the boat. We come upon the trio sitting in the cozy living room of the colonel's house. The colonel receives a death threat from a mysterious man known as the Ace of Spades. They report it to the police, and over the next few days, a couple of men are killed with notes left behind, with the Ace of Spades claiming each kill. In the end, it turns out that their friend, the Colonel, is himself the mysterious murderer, the Ace of Spades, and they are able to catch him and turn him over to the police. No word on the whys or wherefores or anything about why he was doing his crimes. He's just one of those guys who likes to kill people for a hobby, I guess. Watch out for a new Tex Thompson adventure next issue. Uh, I'm I'm not going to reveal the connection, but I think it's kind of cool that Tex Thompson was in a story in an issue that introduced the ultra-humanite when it comes to James Robinson's The Golden Age. I'm also, and I kind of hate to say this, because I don't want to come off as as being kind of a jerk or anything, but there's a scene in here where they're just hanging out in the bathroom while Tex is taking a shower. Yes. And, you know... What's weird about that? Jeffrey, if we were ever traveling together and you were taking a shower, I would be nowhere near that bathroom. Well, that's thank just, you. I appreciate that. that, that, that that's, your, that's, that's your time. I know, but in, <laughs> but in the 1930s, it's okay. I guess. Um, and th- th- you know th- this because you lived back then? Is that what you're trying to say? No, because homosexuality didn't exist yet. Oh. Had <laughs> <laughs> Hadn't been invented. No. Right. <laughs> yeah. But they, they shower, they shave, and they get dressed together. I, I, I think that Tex and Bob really like traveling together. Wait. On that same page you're talking about, Mike, on the panel above the shower, what is Bob doing to Tex's leg? Don't. I don't even want to talk about it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> The court, the, the court order prevents me from talking about it, so I'm not going to talk about it. <laughs> We're just going to keep on going then. <laughs> okay. Well, next we have two pages. Count them two about stamps. I don't like the stamps. Woo-hoo! Stamp fairies are out to get me. 
We'll pretend they're not there because on the next page we have our sixth story, Chuck Dawson by H. Fleming, which is six pages. And last time, Chuck had succeeded in locating the cave where Virginia was being held captive. Passing the Mexican on guard, that's the way it's written there, passing the Mexican on guard, by using the mask of a gunman named Wolf, he encountered Virginia, who took him for one of her abductors. So now she's pointing a gun in his face, but he tells her who he is, and I'm here to rescue you. She Aren't makes, you a little small to be a stormtrooper? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> she makes him pull his mask off, and you know he pulls off his mask and pulls out his lightsaber, and they're off and going. They do subdue the guard, and they get away. But Wolf has managed to cut his bonds from last issue and is watching them approach, getting ready to shoot them from a cliff. But Zeeb, the Diamond H rider who has also been trying to show Virginia's abductors, sees Wolf from above and sees Chuck and Virginia approaching, so he attacks Wolf to prevent Wolf from shooting them. But they start fighting, but Wolf is pummeling Zeeb. He's actually winning when Chuck arrives and gives Wolf a solid uppercut to his bristling jaw to be continued. And the seventh and final feature in this issue of Action Comics is Zatara, the Master Magician and the Swamp of Satan by Gardner Fox and Fred Gardner. A young brother and sister are being harassed by a local witch and her son, John, spelled J-O-N, just like my name. No relation, though. Mm-hmm. The, the, the witch and John live in the Swamp of Satan, which, if I were looking for a place to live and there was a place called the Swamp of Satan, I would just keep on looking. The story involves... <laughs> <laughs> some sort Sorry. of... So it's fine. The story involves some sort of plot involving the siblings, uncle wanting property, and Zatara helps them out. Through the course of things, Tong throws the witch's brute son into some quicksand, and Zatara turns the witch herself into part of the swamp. So yay for more killing the bad guys. Oh, and the uncle dies of a heart attack. So the pretty young brother and sister can basically just go back to whatever incestuous activities they might have been up to before this without anyone bothering them further. And the final page of the book has more illustrated random facts by Gil Fox with a text banner across the top of the page saying the Batman appears every month in Detective Comics. Don't miss him. Because the Batman was only a couple of months old at this point. The inside back cover continues to advertise the new monthlies, All-American Comics and Movie Comics. And the back cover has an ad for $6.45 worth of fireworks for only two ninety-five. Because fireworks are fun. And that is the end of Action Comics 13. Wow, that is a lot of fireworks. It's a lot of fireworks. Wow. Kill somebody with that thing. They didn't care as much back in the 30s. I guess not. Up, up, and away! So, moving on to Superman number one. Which actually doesn't say number one on the cover, so I almost wonder if this was thought of as a one-shot at first. I don't know. And then they just followed up with a number two a quarter later. Of course, this book is historic for so many reasons. But one of the main reasons is that this is the first comic book ever printed that is totally devoted to one character. The first comic books were reprints of newspaper strips, and then they started printing all new stories in the comics, but they had always been collections of stories about different characters. So here we have 64 pages devoted to Superman. But of course, it's an idea that is still being formed, because even here, almost 100% of the content is reprints from the previous comic books. But give it time, folks. This whole comic book industry is a new thing. And Superman is helping pave the way, so yay, Superman. 
The book was released on or around May 18, 1939, with a no-month 1939 cover date. The cover is just about as iconic a Superman cover as you can find, other than maybe Action Comics number one. The image is actually taken from the opening splash image of Action Comics 10, but everyone always associates it with this cover, which is fine because it's beautifully executed here. We have Superman high in the air, looking down at the city below him. One hand is raised in the air above and behind him, the other sort of pointed down at an angle like he's found where he's about to go. And there are blurbs all over. The book has 64 pages of action, all in full color, and there's a large caption box that reads, The Complete Story of the Daring Exploits of the One and Only Superman. And really, the art is awesome. The costume looks great. Uh, The details are there, done right. There are sometimes these covers, they're just kind of muddled images of Superman's costume, but it's, it's really awesome here. The S is bright red on the yellow triangular S shield. His boots are red. The cape is billowing. It's beautiful. If we open the cover... The inside is another patchwork of ads, but the book opens with a two-page retelling of Superman's origin. This is the second time it's been told in any detail after the newspaper strips had done so a few months earlier. But this version focuses on some different aspects and makes some changes. We have the name of the planet Krypton introduced into the comics for the first time, but everything else about what happened there is ignored, and instead the story begins with the infant and the ship rocketing away from the dying planet. When the ship reaches our world, it is found by the Kents, an elderly couple. They turn the infant over to an orphanage, and the baby scares the attendants by lifting dressers and furniture and stuff. But the Kents come back to ask if they can adopt the boy, and the man in charge is secretly relieved because he thought the baby was going to wreck the asylum. Superman's parents teach him to hide his abilities so people won't fear him, but to use them to help others. And as the lad grew older, he learned to his delight that he could hurdle skyscrapers, leap an eighth of a mile, raise tremendous weights, run faster than a streamlined train, and nothing less than a bursting shell could penetrate his skin. His foster parents die when he's an adult, and he decides that he will now turn his titanic strength into channels that will benefit mankind. And so is created Superman champion of the oppressed, the physical Marvel who has sworn to devote his existence to helping those in need. Uh, Is this the first time we have, like, a couple finding them? Because I know the the comic strip just showed one guy. Yes, the first time we actually have the Kents as a couple. Yeah, Uh, Mary Kent. Yeah, Mary Kent. Uh, There's no name for the father. He's got a mustache, I think. It's hard to tell. Yeah, it's it's a little bit of a mustache. It's, It's kind of a creepy one, too. It's a, pencil, it's a pencil thin. It's a pimp stash. Uh, yes. I, I don't know why he's dressed like Billy Batson at the bottom of the uh, first page. That's kind of Oh, weird. he really is, yeah. But, um, <laughs> but it's kind of interesting because that's the outfit Clark Kent would wear in most of the Superboy adventures uh, through the 60s, 70s, and 80s. So they uh, <laughs> they really looked back to this one panel for his, uh, his fashion sense. Uh, it's kind of funny that that we're discussing this page because one of the earliest conversations John and I ever had was him asking me something about the origin and, and when certain things were established and when they weren't. And here we are talking about this issue. <laughs> That's kind of cool. Actually, you uh, told me at that point um, about the name Kal-El being introduced in the newspaper strips. Yes. yes because – it's not in the comics until the Silver Age. You don't hear his name until the Silver Age. And I had not read the newspaper strips at that time. 
So whenever I did that for my for this show a few episodes back, that was my first time to see that. So you clued me in that that was there, which is cool. I live to serve. <laughs> the Kens are going to have a very distinctive look in the Superman books a few years from now, and they don't have that here. It, it's they're they're not very attractive people in the uh, in the later Superman books. I'm talking about not the not the Superboy Martha and John because they they're more your home you know hometown folks. But in the Superman books, they are going to look almost American Gothic style people. It's it's um, it's different than this, and it's not very pretty. But yeah, this is the first Kents. Now we have the next four pages, which I believe were actually part of the original Superman material that was shopped around. And then when it was all assembled into Action Comics 1 and 2, this introductory bit was left out. I could be wrong about that, but I seem to remember reading that recently, that these four pages were actually from the original Superman stories they were trying to shop around for the to the newspapers. Okay, so in the outer waiting room of the Daily Star, the receptionist tells Clark that the editor will see him now, but she thinks he's wasting his time. Clark enters, explains that he has no experience, but thinks he'll make a great reporter, much better than having a resume and examples of work and references would do. Um, and the unnamed editor says that they can't use him, and so Clark leaves. In an alley, Clark changes to Superman, determined to get the job. He leaps up, landing outside the editor's window, and overhears news of a mob attacking the county jail. Realizing that this could be his break, Superman leaps from the building toward the jail, hoping to get there in time. Meanwhile, at the jail, a mob of men are using a battering ram to knock down the front door, intent on lynching somebody. The mob is about to hang Sims, who's the guy who is in jail, I guess. And uh, Sims begs for mercy, but uh, Superman hops down and punches out a bunch of the people who are mobbing him. And uh, the rest all pretty much back down. A man thanks Superman for his help and asks who he is, and he simply says, a reporter. And they put Sims back in his cell. So for saving his life, Sims offers to give Superman a red-hot story. Superman visits Sims in jails and tells him that he's innocent. So Superman asks, who is the murderer? Sims replies with B. Carroll, who is a singer of the Willow Nightclub. Clark then calls the editor of the Daily Star and asks if he gets the job for getting the story. The editor tells him that he starts tomorrow. Clark then shows up at the club to wait for Bia Carroll to come on stage. As Bia is on stage, she doesn't realize Clark is actually watching her. Later, when Bia is in the dressing room, she comes out and sees Superman waiting for her, naturally. Um, and he tells her that he knows that she killed Jack Kennedy. She says, what kind of nut are you? And she goes and calls her manager. Superman tells B that he knows of her involvement in the murder, and she comes on to him. And it doesn't phase Superman in the least, which means that this woman is probably kind of ugly. Uh, she pulls a gun and admits to being on the grassy knoll in Dallas on November 22nd, 1963. Uh, oh, wait, that's the wrong Jack Kennedy that she killed. I'm, I, I <laughs> apologize profusely. <sighs> Oliver Stone directs Superman number one. In any case, B admits to killing Jack Kennedy and Superman grabs the gun, twists it into a lump of metal, <laughs> grabs B and flies her into the sun. 
<laughs> Since Scott Gardner could not be here tonight, I wanted him to be representative. Anyways, what really happens is that he grabs B's wrist and threatens to do the same to her wrist as he did to the gun if she doesn't admit to her wrongdoing. And B is all sad because she knows she'll go to the chair, but Superman is quick to point out, duh, none of this would happen if you didn't, you know, kill a guy. <laughs> <Dang>. <laughs> And from there, the story goes into Action Comics number one, which got a very detailed recap in the uh, in the first episode of this show. So we can we we can definitely talk about the story, but I don't, I don't feel the need to really go through a page by page breakdown of it. However, before we do that, Cayman is going to have to head out. Cayman, did you have any uh, story comments that you wanted to share before you have to go on? Um, Superman number one is amazing. I like it. Uh, it's short. Sweet and to the point, I think. And it really starts to show Superman's morality and that he will pretty much do anything he has to do to protect the innocent, which is going back to pretty much what he stands for. I like the origin at the beginning. It's for like, if you've never read Action Comics and you just picked up Superman number one, you know, you can now be up to speed with what's going on. You don't need to read all the previous issues. You can pick up Superman number one and be caught up with everyone else, which I think is great for those people. Definitely. So... I want that that scientific explanations of Superman's amazing strength. I wish I could get that blown up to like cover my door. <laughs> that would be just awesome. Just walk in and that's the first thing you see. But guys, it has been so much fun. I really cannot tell you how much I appreciate you having me on your show, John. I was glad to have you, Cayman. Uh, thank you for being here, and we'll try to get together again sometime soon. Definitely sounds great. You all have a good night. Uh, good night. Nice to meet good you. Night. Nice, nice to meet you, Cayman. Man. Bye, guys. Okay, so yeah, I I like this introduction here, but I'll let y'all talk first. Uh, why don't we go in reverse order from last time? And Jeffrey, what were your thoughts on? You know, let's let's do this. If if um not just the opening pages, but if if you have thoughts on this whole introductory story of Superman in general that's being reprinted from Action Comics one, we let's talk about that. Okay, well, I, I mean, my my notes are a little bit sparse going beyond the, the stuff that's basically new, because I figured that would be like retreading the same material. But um, d- during the origin, and I probably should have thought to say this when you were talking about the origin and saying, hey, what does everybody think about this? But uh, the, the last <laughs> panel of page one, this is still hugely important, I think, that Superman learned his morals from his adopted parents. I mean, th- th- this is definitely one thing that has held over all the way up until till the present. Since he's not raised on Krypton, he doesn't have the Kryptonian morality, but he's a character who wants to help people and uses his power specifically to help people because that's the way that he was that he was raised. That's what his parents were always teaching him. Mm-hmm. And so I found that to be very important. On um, page... Three. I guess this is the first page after the the origin stories. This is actually pretty much how Clark got hired for his job at, at uh, the Daily Planet in Lois and Clark, because this is uh, you know the Golden Age Superman, a uh, Lois and Clark podcast. So he, <laughs> he he had to prove himself before he was hired, basically, and that's that's pretty much what he does and how he ends up getting the job. However, on page four, when I wanted to get the writing job at the Superman homepage, I had to send in a writing sample. Clark apparently doesn't have to do that. He just right. has to get the story, and then he's got the job. Well, to be fair, it didn't really write that first story. He just kind of called it in. Okay, yeah, exactly. 
But a good reporter knows how to write. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> yes. And he makes the stories great. Yes. <laughs> good reporter makes them great. Then we get into the the story from Action Comics number one. I do love that the first action that Superman ever took in his first appearance was something much more thoughtful than simply punching out a bad guy. That it was to save somebody who was wrongly accused and going to going to to die from from an execution. So right. I, and, and and he has to take out a woman in order to do that. Like his his first yeah. official bad guy in this story is a chick. In an evening gown, no less. Well, women are evil. <laughs> <laughs> I've made some comments on this show about Siegel and Schuster's um, opinions of women, because I, I do think that Lois Lane was definitely colored by their experiences growing up. Um, and I, I have a feeling that, who is this woman, B, might, might not be entirely separate from that either. Because Probably they were not. a couple of they, they were a couple of geeks who, you know, couldn't get with the the hot women. That's what that's the impression that I have of them. Fair enough. But then Siegel now, married Lois Lane, so <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, but let's be fair. He didn't marry Lois Lane before he was like you know famous. <laughs> Good so, point. She wasn't really and, Lois Lane. She wasn't Lois Lane's bitchy personality. She just you know was the, the look of the character. Do you think and, and Paul Dini would have the wife that he has if? He weren't Paul Dini. Uh, I, I really don't know. I, I, I do know that Jerry Siegel was married when he proposed to his Lois. So. Ooh. I did not, did know, not that. know that. Oh, yeah. So he had a wife and a kid. He had a Whoa. son, Michael. And they got a divorce. And, like, not too long after that is when he uh, he and uh, – God, I can't remember. Uh, Joanna? Joanna got married, yeah. Well, it's not his fault. He didn't know he was going to get famous. And, 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 and the other funny thing is is that Joe Schuster brought her to that party as his date. <laughs> oh. So. Wow. And the rift begins. Not trying to, to speak ill of the dead or anything. I just uh, – I have nothing but respect for Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. I have nothing but admiration for the character they created, but I am also not one of these Superman fans that is going to put on a pair of rose-tinted glasses and make it a, you know, good versus evil, David versus Goliath story when there's a lot going on there that they just don't talk about. So, <laughs> Donner versus Lester. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Shakespeare didn't write the plays. Right. Right. Right, right. Page 10 of this story, that, that I believe that's if you include the origin pages. The wife-beating thing is something that I actually r- remember. Uh, when when I was on the show before, we, we had talked about how there was, in uh, Action Comics number 7, a story that seemed to flow into another story during time and time again. The wife-beating scene actually reminds me a lot of a story that would later be done in 1992 in the Superman books. And I, I do have to wonder if they were looking back at this and got, got the idea from there. So it's, it's just hard to say. Uh, did they um, – I'm sorry, but didn't they uh, – I think they actually incorporated that scene into that story, didn't they? Yes, they did. Yeah, the whole you're not fighting a woman now, that whole thing was redone. Yeah, that, okay. that's probably why I remember it that way, so so that works out. And it's very possible they were directly inspired because the Superman Archives collections just started in, like, 1989. So they could have possibly seen that story for the first time 
and then you know had it in mind a couple years later when they were writing. Very cool. On uh, page twenty-five, which is pretty much getting on to the, well into what what would be Action Comics number two, there is the first time that somebody looks up and sort of sees Superman, but then says, "Probably just a bird." <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's a plane. No, nah, it's just a guy in red and blue tights and a cape. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> it's a by wrestler the, outfit with a cape. By by the third and fourth action issues, which pretty much make up the last two stories in Superman number one, I, I actually kind of found myself thinking that this guy's in the suit about as often as Clark on Smallville. Yes. <laughs> And I do, and I do love that Superman can use grease paint to make himself look like exactly like Captain Marvel, who had not been created yet. Yes, that's funny, Mike. What were some of your thoughts on on the the story? This is the very first Superman comic book I ever read. Okay, um, it was reprinted in Superman from the '30s to the '70s, and. That those were the very first Superman story comic books that I that I ever actually physically read. I mean, I'd seen the movies, I'd watched the cartoons, but as far as uh, as reading the, the actual comics, you know, I hadn't gotten to that point yet. And because of that, this story will always have a kind of sentimental place in my heart. This is an example of two firsts in comics, <laughs> other than a a single. Title uh, or a title devoted to a single character. One, it's the first director's cut, and I'm fascinated by that. That you know, it, it seems kind of cheap to reprint the material, but instead of just reprinting the material, they gave the people who were buying the book a little extra, and you got a little more of the origin and everything. So you, you got to see the whole setup. Because Action Comics number one's great. <laughs> that is a disjointed story to jump in the middle of. Mm-hmm. Because first he's he's saving somebody who you have no idea who he's saving. There's no real explanation, and then he's off fighting a war. Right. So it's, it's just like what? But it's also kind of the first trade paperback. Yeah, it's it's um, big enough to be. Yeah, I mean it, it it collects the first four stories in one convenient volume, in a one ten cent volume. Mm. That, that'd be kind of awesome these days. Um, <laughs> I like the intro. I, I like seeing Superman fighting the wife beater just because it's that the thing I was kind of talking about before. It's that visceral, you know, there is an injustice. I will stop him. Uh, there's a scene in Tom DeHaven's It's Superman where Clark takes care of a wife beater in kind of a less spectacular of a, of a, of a manner. But still, you know, there there's that sense there that this guy, he sees something, he fixes it. And, you know, nothing's really going to stop him from doing that. And the line, you're not fighting a woman now, is just so freaking awesome. <laughs> he probably just shattered that dude's spine. <laughs> oh, <Okay>. but he fainted. <laughs> yeah, he fainted. Yeah, from the sheer amount of pain he's in that you threw him across the room. Now, I'm sure that's a tenement and the walls are kind of cheap. But still, that crap's going to hurt. Exactly. The, um... I'm sorry, the, the best part of this issue is him picking the, 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 the butler up and carrying him up the stairs. And then, and then going, <laughs> yeah. 
And then the butler going, that's a steel door. You're never going to get into there. And Superman just looks at him after he rips it down and goes, well, you, you, you told me to. It was your idea. <laughs> Dumbass. But going, I, not really going to, because you ha- you did cover it so well in the uh, in the first episode. This is a really cool story. I mean, once you get into like the political intrigue, this you got to think that you know Superman started. You know, the story started out on a very, very human scale. You know, a lynching that he prevents, which leads him into you know a, a man framed for murder, which gets him the job at the the Daily Star, really. But also we jump right into political intrigue and then Superman's off in another country fighting a war. And he is either the most intelligent person on the face of the planet or just the luckiest SOB on the face of the planet that he is able to manipulate events as he does. Right. Because he really, I mean, it's just like, Oh, I just happened to be able to get these two guys to stop fighting a war. And I think it really speaks to where Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster were coming from as creators and what was on their mind that Superman puts the two guys in the room and says, well, what are you fighting for? And they're like, I don't know. Oh, you know, I, I was fighting him because he was fighting me. Well, I was fighting you because you were fighting me. Higgins, Pickering, and they pick hands. Um, no one gets the My Fair Lady reference. I'm very sad. It's been a while since I've seen that. I thought that might be where you were going, but I wasn't <laughs> sure. <laughs> I refuse but, to laugh at references to musicals. Right. Unless you have somebody laugh with you in harmony. That's different. Well, harmony. I've just never seen it, so. <laughs> <laughs> but the fact that he is out of costume so much at the end of the story is kind of shocking and, and kind of... That's an interesting to say. That's something that would never happen today. If you had the hero who had like a really neat costume, there is absolutely no way on God's green earth that they'd be like, ah, yeah, you can stay out of that costume at the end of the story. Who cares? You know, really. So, but that that's all I got on, on, on Superman number one. I, I did forget to mention, by the way, that Action Comics number one has been reprinted on its own a couple of times. I have one that's from 1988, and it actually does include the two-page origin from Superman number one. And I want to say that it, that it also has those first four pages as well, but I'm not positive about that. But it does include that, that extra two-page origin from Superman number one. Which book was that in? In the the reprint of Action Comics number one, the from fiftieth ni- anniversary reprint. Yes, the the nineteen eighty eight one. Okay, Charlie, what were your what were your summary reactions to the Superman one? Well, um, well, like like Michael, uh, the first time I read it, although I read it in Superman thirties to the eighties, um, uh, this was the I think this pretty much was my first Superman story too, and I know I got thrown off guard when I actually saw some Action Comics reprints and they didn't have the first. What seven pages or so? I, I had the I same know. exact reaction. By the way, I was, I was just like, "Wait a second! No, I've read this before." Exactly. I was like, "Dude, you got gypped. They're missing like half the story right here." But um, so I, I was kind of thinking reprints were like really gypping you on pages and everything. But I just, I, I it's really cool because in a span of well, at least in the first part of action, you've really got like four, three or four different stories. That they throw he's that they cram in there, which I understand is because it's from the newspaper, but and then the second issue is basically just the end of that one story. So when you put it all together, you've you've really got like 
four or five Superman stories all in two issues of action. And that's just like the first half of this of Superman one. And so it, would have been, it, it would have been paced out over weeks of daily newspaper strips if, if they had sold it and gone that direction to begin with. Right, right. But, but to kind of play off something Charlie just said, it makes me wonder, was Superman popular from word go, or did it take a few issues for him to gain some popularity? Because if this was the story that appeared in Action Comics number one, with the whole buildup of his origin and, you know, him fighting the wife beater and then kind of stopping at the, uh, you know, him putting B in jail and preventing Evelyn Curry from being killed. If that had been the first story, like complete beginning, middle and end, then I can see that being a character people would latch on to. But I got to think that, and I could be wrong here. And this is maybe me being just a little cynical about the situation, that maybe it wasn't like Action Comics hit, hit number one hit the stands and everyone was like, oh my god. Now it's possible because of the cover, uh, but it but it seems like this is a, with the way the story was paced out that it might have taken a few issues for people to really latch on to the character. Well, I do know that Action Comics number one was the first comic book to sell over a million copies. And um, they they reprinted the the hell out of it, but they they didn't put like you know this is a second printing. There's no additional marking on it whatsoever, which is why it doesn't matter what ver- which version you get. If you happen to have a copy of Action Comics number one, they're all equally valuable based on what condition they're in or how much you can get somebody to pay for it. But there were lots and lots of them. I I know that it did sell a a million copies, which was a lot at that time. It was the highest, highest number that there was at that time. Yeah. I think I read that it was like, uh, it was a few issues before he really actually started catching on. Like I know the like action one and two sold a lot, but I think the numbers even kept going up and up before they finally hit a plateau and started just kind of leveling. So My impression s- is that um, after the first issue, they actually tailed down a bit because he had all those cover, all those issues of action comics that didn't have Superman on the cover. And you had kids who would go to newsstands and they would want Superman. They wouldn't see him on the covers of any of the comics, so they wouldn't buy it. And then whenever 7 came out, it had Superman on the cover and kids were buying it a lot. And so okay. when publishers are asking newsstand owners what happened, uh, they're like, well, they're, they're not asking for action comics. They're asking for Superman. Yeah, but how apocryphal is that story? Yeah, I have no idea. I mean, it, it could be made up for all I know, but it's just the, 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 what I've read, the impression I have from what I've read in different places. And again, well, that's, okay. I'm, not, I'm not trying to naysay or, or poke holes in the legend, but it's just I'm just wondering how it actually worked out. For someone somewhere, that definitely happened. Well, apparently Superman and gorillas were the big thing on the comic books in those days. <laughs> gorillas with suspenders. Yes. But beyond that, I have enjoyed Superman number one. I think just about the most of it is, in, is reprinted in um, that 30s to the 80s book. Mm-hmm. And I think I've got it reprinted in about five different books in its entirety. I got the, chronic, uh, yeah, the Chronicles and the – what else? The, the Archives. And I mean, I, I like it. It it does. It is really ballsy when you think about the fact, though, that you've got Superman, and for Superman one or the first four stories of action, he's only in his costume like the first story, 
and a little yeah. bit after that because the second story he's what dressed he's part of the army and then the third story he's um in the mines and then the fourth story he's the football player right yeah. so he's it's pretty crazy how he actually was able to get so popular considering that basically he wasn't even in costume for most of the book but yeah i superman's really important and i I, I, it got me, helped get me hooked to it, and I didn't read it till about fifty years later. So, I, uh, I really like Superman from the '30s to the '80s. I think uh, it's pretty much the same in the first half of the book, but when they, the, the differences uh, of the books that they reprint for the '60s and '70s, I think they chose a lot of lot better stories for Superman from the '30s to the '80s than, uh, than the '70s edition. Yeah, I think um, I think I figured that the ones that they changed out were like I think the 30s to the 80s doesn't have that Superman Batman team up, uh, and it, I don't think it has the um, the story that action story at the end, which is a, 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 fa- a fabulous world of Krypton thing, and instead they put the miraculous return of, Clark, of Jonathan Kent, which is one of the best freaking Bronze Age stories ever. Yes, yes, yes. Ever. Yes. yes. God, I love that. <laughs> but they also, but, instead of reprinting, I hate to derail the conversation, but at least it, it involves Superman. Um, instead of reprinting a bunch of freaking bizarro stories, like oh, they did yes. Superman from the 30s to the 70s, they reprint the first appearance of the Fortress of Solitude, and they reprint you know, the first appearance of Lexor, basically. Um, yes. Yes. Where you know Superman and Lex Luthor are duking it out, bare chested on on an alien planet. Uh, I, I now have the original of that issue. It's beat to hell, but I love the heck out of it. You know, the, the, it, they they put those in there, which to me are more iconic stories than <laughs> here's here's Superman's retarded brother. You know, showing up. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I, mean, uh, I totally agree. I, I think I'm one of the few Superman fans that really doesn't care for Bizarro all that much. <laughs> I, I like him in small doses, but I've read very little Bizarro. Like his showing up in that um, Man of Steel miniseries, and then the Superboy issue that that's based on are the only Bizarro stories I think I've actually read from beginning to end. I basically just like certain bizarro stories. I, I, I don't love the character and all its incarnations. Since I've actually you know talked in some detail about you know the, the bulk of this book in earlier episodes, I'm not going to spend a lot of time with that now. On, on the first few pages, though, there were just two things that stood out to me as being interesting. In the second page of actual story, when at the bottom of the page, I don't know how you did it, but you have my thanks. Who are you? A reporter. Let's get this prisoner back in his cell. <laughs> I mean, obviously, this is his first appearance, you know, in his, you know, chronological life, and he may not quite have the whole super identity thing figured out yet, but that's definitely a lot more reveal of himself than he is ever going to give again. You know, Superman is, from, from now on, the world could know that Superman is a reporter. Somewhere out there in one of the newspapers, Superman's a reporter. I, I have to wonder, this guy Sims, whenever they pull him out of jail, if he, if he talks and and has like green diamonds over his head and stuff. Um, awesome. I don't know if anyone else plays that game besides me. 
But yeah, this my memory is a big old block of Swiss cheese with a whole lot of holes in it. So it's sometimes when I look at think about what I've read of Superman, I forget things. We did have the Superman Archives Volume One. Within a year or two of it being published, I'm pretty sure we had it before I read the Armageddon 2001 crossovers. So this story of Superman, this issue of Superman, is probably the first actual Superman comic I read as well through that first Superman vo- Superman Archives Volume 1. It's a great introduction to the character. It, like I said, it, it could have been intended as a one-shot. And they're going to play with exactly what they want to put in the Superman book. They're going to play with that for a while before we actually get to a collection of four new stories every issue. And so here they're taking his first four ish- his first four issues, doing the director's cut business, like Mike said, and presenting it to anyone who didn't get them the first time around. And I think it's great. I think it's a great you know present to the readers. It's almost like what Stan Lee did with the Marvel Tales annual, you know, reprinting all the origins and early adventures of characters in one big book for a, you know, for an event. But yeah, the the rest of the stories I've talked about at length. This this 17-page version of the story is, you know, reprinted every time Superman 1 is reprinted in the Superman Chronicles volume 1. That project is trying to reprint the Superman stories from all different books in roughly chronological order. But the way the first volume is constructed, it goes through his first year of stories and it ends with Superman 1 only reprinting the new material. So the book ends with these four pages that lead you into the first story of the book. So that first volume of the Superman Chronicles has a very cyclical feel to it. And it's actually, I think it's kind of a cool volume in the way that it's constructed like that. It reads like a Mobius strip. It does. It, is, <laughs> it, it does read like a Mobius strip. So just to run through the information, the issue here has been reprinted. And like we said, Superman from the 30s to the 70s, hardcover from 1971. And we had the famous first edition, C61, that reprinted Superman 1. That's from 1979. Superman Archives Volume 1 hardcover from 1989. The Millennium Edition, Superman Number 1, which they did several different uh, first issues of people in 2000. And then Superman The Greatest Stories Ever Told, Volume 1 trade paperback from 2004. And like I said, the Superman Chronicles Volume 1 from 2006. Actually, that's not quite the end of Superman Number 1. I was just looking through and I realized that there is a two-page spread in the middle uh, inviting everyone to become members of the Superman of America, a club that would last for a very, very long time with uh, constantly putting secret coded messages into issues of Action Comics and Superman that you can decode if you have your Superman of America detection kit. You know what's really funny about that ad being in there is back right before they did the Superman of America special as that, that fifth week special that they plugged in there during the whole Superman Rex storyline mm-hmm. uh, where they introduced the Superman of America, who I thought was a pretty abysmal team. Um, that I, We're I going to have to talk about them. <laughs> I know we do. Uh, I bought Superman Archives Volume 1 for 10 bucks at this uh, used bookstore the day before they announced 
that there was going to be a Superman of America comic book. And I'm like, <laughs> well, that's weird. <laughs> <laughs> I just learned about these guys. I get the reference. <laughs> awesome. Was that just before the, the one shot or the six issue miniseries? Cause there was a one shot first, I think. Yes, but this was before the uh, one-shot and the introduction okay. in the Superman Rex storyline. Well, Such the, a uh, weird team. I'm not entirely sure what all you got with this club. It says if you send in your, – your membership as a charter member is basically free. You have to send in 10 cents to cover shipping. And they send you a membership card, a badge, and a secret code. And I don't know if that's like a key to decode all the secret codes they're going to send you in the future to drink more Ovaltine or whatever it is that they say. I, I honestly have no idea what those things say, but there's – I'm pretty sure that's exactly what it – um, I've seen – I don't remember if it was in this or there's other – if it's your issues of Superman where they do have a code. But obviously if you don't have the decoder, you can't say, figure out what it is, although you probably could if you tried hard enough. Isn't that what it turned out to be in A Christmas Story? Yeah, it was like it was yeah. just that. Yeah, that was a Christmas story reference that I was doing there. It was drink, drink or Ovaltine. It's been so long since I've seen it, but I do remember that. And they're going to be labeled like Mercury Code Number Nine or something like that. And I, I have been reading that as being that's the key that you need to use to decode the message. But now I'm thinking that maybe that particular message was the special Mercury Code Number Nine, and um, you decode it. it. Says, "Don't forget to buy next month's Action Comics or whatever it is that it says." But anyways, well, it's too bad Cayman's gone. Otherwise, I mean, I'm sure he's got one. Oh, he's probably got like. Oh, that would be cool. Cayman, come back. (laughs) (laughs) We also have a wait. The rings that came with it. Yeah, yeah. Those are incredibly rare. Uh, They covered it on Pawn Stars on the History Channel. A guy brought one in. It was battered all to hell. Uh, and they ended up not buying it because he wanted like ten thousand dollars for it. It really wasn't one oh, of the rings. It was worth it. Um, but they kind of went through. There, there's there's only a certain number of those left in existence. And Cayman's a great guy. I doubt it's in his collection. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Cayman, if you have one of those, you just won like fifty points. And if you don't have one of those, you need to get one. Yeah, save up your pennies. That way you can get fifty points. <laughs> yes. And we know of a place where you can get one for $10,000. Right. <laughs> yes. See Michael Bailey. Who will refer you to Pawn Stars and the bald guy who is actually secretly the ultra humanite after he's retired. <laughs> exactly. Can he grow hair and then lose it again? You know, that guy can do some awesome stuff. I'm pretty sure that he okay. could. But continue. Topic. <laughs> So that ad was between the reprints of issues two and three and all of Action Comics that were in Superman number one. And right after it was a page that came and mentioned of scientific explanation of Superman's amazing strength. And you basically have several illustrated facts about Superman that are kind of cool. We're told, I think for the first time, that the people of Superman's planet Krypton were physically perfect due to evolution. And the idea is introduced that Earth's lesser mass and therefore lighter gravity compared to Krypton has helped to enhance Superman's abilities. Those are two new concepts being introduced into the Superman mythos here. And Wait, lighter gravity on Krypton? No, lighter gravity on Earth compared to Krypton. That makes sense. Okay, just making sure. There, there's a whole – I've talked about this on, on other shows, but there is a – a book called The Physics of Superheroes by James 
I can't remember the last name, but it's it's something Greek. It starts with a K, but it's called The Physics of Superheroes. Uh, it's the same guy who did The Physics of Star Trek. And the whole first chapter is about how in action comics, if Superman can jump an eighth of a mile compared to how high you're, like an average human being can jump on Earth, how much um, denser or how much mass must Krypton have had to have that additional gravity and so basically it, it, it turned out when, when all the physics are done on it and it's all walked through for you, uh, it turns out the Krypton should have 15 times the mass of Earth. Nice. Yes. Wow. That's got to be huge. <laughs> that it, is, could also, it could also be a lot denser. It's hard to say. That is James Kakalias, by the way, who has That's, some YouTube videos. I'm looking here about Death of Gwen Stacy and Superman's Blue. Okay. Like that. Yeah, I was just going to say, he's the guy. That guy, he's actually pretty funny. I'll have to look at some of those after we're done. watch those. Yeah, and the Physics of Superhero Heroes book is totally worth worth getting. And I don't know if he really is, just talks that way, or if he just happened to have a bit of a cold, but he actually has the cliche kind of nerdy stuffed nose thing. It was really cool. It made it funnier. <laughs> <laughs> there's a page about Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster with sort of little biographies about them. And then there's a text story. Basically what happens is... Sergeant Blake arrives at the office of Harvey Brown, patent attorney, to find it a completely wrecked disaster zone. The patent attorney had been visited by Superman for stealing clients' inventions, and Superman had threatened him with more damage if he didn't leave town. The police officers remember a costumed man going into the elevator when they got there, so they go and stop the elevator until Sergeant Blake and his men get downstairs. When the elevator opens, a slim, nervous man with glasses walks out, this is, of course, Clark Kent, whose poise and demeanor immediately deflect any notion that he might be Superman. When the police go back to headquarters to file a report, Clark goes with them in search of a story. At the office, they find that a murder suspect, Biff Dugan, has been captured, but he hasn't been too talkative. Clark demands to interview him in private. When he threatens to print a story about the Superman mix-up from the attorney's office, Sergeant Blake agrees. After giving him a few minutes, Blake knocks on the door to check on progress, but while Clark is answering the door, Biff dashes out an open window. Clark throws Sergeant Blake against a wall to knock him out, just like the you're-not-fighting-a-woman-now guy, and then he changes to Superman and goes after Biff. He leaps from the office window a full 300 yards to land in front of Biff's getaway car. By the way, 300 yards is more than an eighth of a mile. Superman grabs the front bumper of the car, and when Biff gets out, Superman knocks him out. Back at police headquarters, Sergeant Blake wakes up to Clark Kent kneeling beside him. He threatens to arrest Clark for losing Biff, but Biff is, of course, safe in jail. Clark says some man in a costume threw him back in through the window, to which the uh, detective replies, Do you realize who that must have been? Superman! Well, gosh, I guess you're right. You know, sometimes I think Superman isn't such a bad guy at that. But don't think that doesn't mean I won't arrest him the minute I get my hands on him. And the um, story ends on a little bit of a laugh. It's a combination of cool moments and silliness. The sergeant asks his people, have you seen anyone? Uh, no one. Well, that is, no one except a guy wearing a strange costume. And you know, that was a little bit silly. But then you do have like a written description of Clark Kent when they see him stepping out of the elevator. And you get an idea about how the disguise deflects people more than just the fact that he's wearing glasses. But that he, you know, the way he carries himself, he's not Supermanish at all. We do get the first explicit mention in the comic books, though, of Superman's telescopic vision, which is a cool thing about the story. 
And on the last page of the book, we get an ad for Superman appearing in action comics, including a sneak peek at next month's cover with Satara doing magics on a woman in a throne. And there's a guy looking on in shocked expression because of what Zatara is about to do to her now that she's all magicked up. The inside back covers another mess of ads, very similar to the one on the front cover. And then the actual back cover is a beautiful pinup image of Superman busting the chains off his chest with a really cool version of the symbol that I think would help to inspire the Fleischer cartoon costume. It's a bold red S on an inverted black triangle with the triangle outlined in yellow. Very, very cool. So that brings us to the end of Superman number one. And we have one more segment we're going to do here in this episode for the newspaper strips that were published in May. This story will be reprinted in Superman number two, but since these guys I have with me won't be around then, we'll go ahead and take a few minutes for it here before we close out the episode. In the story, Clark Kent is sent to get an interview with inventor Adolphus Runyon, who has developed a gas powerful enough to break any gas mask. And he demonstrates this for Clark by killing a monkey. But of course, he will only turn this gas over to the War Department in the case of a defensive war, despite his mad scientist eyebrows. So then we have three thugs enter, and you know they're thugs because the leader, a guy named Bartow, is wearing a pinstripe suit. Clark is thrown out, but he does eavesdrop outside the door as they threaten the professor's life, giving him 24 hours to turn over the formula. Clark also trails them to their hideout before going back to work. Later at the Daily Star, Clark gets the word that Professor Runyon has been killed, so he goes home to his apartment and changes clothes to Superman. He goes to their hideout and hears mention of a civil war in Boravia that it must be what the gas is going to be used for. When Barto and his boys take off for Boravia in a plane, Superman leaps on top of the bird and hangs on for the duration of the flight across the Atlantic Ocean. When they reach Boravia, he tears his way into the plane. Barto refuses to give up the formula, shoots up the controls, and jumps out with a parachute. Superman jumps too and grabs hold of Barto, who's hanging from his open chute. On the ground, Superman gets the formula from Bartow, but Boravian soldiers come to the crash site and capture Superman. And whenever they're all together at the prisons, Bartow takes the formula back. The soldiers put Superman before a firing squad as a rebel, but of course the bullets do nothing. Thinking his gun must have blanks in it, one of the soldiers decides to test the bullets by shooting himself in the foot. He didn't need that foot anyway. When Superman leaps away, he comes across a town under bombardment by the army, so he smashes their cannons and grabs some bombs, which he then carries over and drops right into a munitions factory. He also tears up a dirigible, killing everyone inside. And then Bartow reports into Lubain, the munitions magnate. He turns over the formula and warns Lubain about Superman, but Lubain doesn't believe in Superman or Santa Claus. And then Bartow and his men take their money and leave, and the month of comics ends with Superman determined to put some fear into Lubain. I like this, actually. I thought the art was actually a step up from what we'd seen. I don't know maybe the co- if the coloring had muddied it up or something, but I thought the art looks a lot more detailed and a lot, just a lot better, I thought. And um, it's a pretty cool story, other than the fact, you know, Superman's killing people. but Left and right. Yes, but we've already established he's, he does that th- th- during this period. But other than that, I thought it was a pretty cool story. And the part with the firing squad was actually pretty classic. Although I thought the guy shooting his foot was just kind of good. Goofy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, oh, my foot. Ouch. But um, and then, of course, the last part where we just see him tearing apart the tanks and 
blowing up the munitions building, which actually I thought that explosion, the art of that explosion looks really cool. And while I don't agree with him doing it, him going through that dirigible looked pretty cool. Yeah, and it 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 actually I um ended up going and looking through uh, Superman two to find, uh, to read the rest of the story because I just uh, this is one of my favorite Golden Age Superman stories too. That probably helps, but yeah, I, yeah. I liked it a lot. And it actually, once it gets reprinted in Superman two, it's by far the longest Superman story of the period because it reprints quite a stretch of newspaper strips. It ends up being like twenty four pages of one story, and you wow. just didn't have that at that time. And you don't notice it because you kind of get. I mean, you really do get sucked into this. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I liked it. I love it when Golden Age Superman takes on foreigners. <laughs> Goes across the ocean and starts fighting up Europeans. Oh, totally. That one image of Superman when the firing squad opens fire and the bullets are racing past his head is so awesome. <laughs> it is so cool. <laughs> it really is good. God, I just looked at that. I'm like, I want, like, I, I want an entire art book of nothing but Superman artists redoing that one page in their own style, <laughs> like a Jurgens and a Burn and an Ordway. And well, we can't have a Swan anymore, unfortunately. But uh, you know, a McGinnis, Garcia a, Lopez, uh, Gary Frank, where he looks like Christopher Reeve, <laughs> but like a creepy version of Christopher Reeve. It even creeped my wife out <laughs> when I showed it. You know, I don't know. Uh, speaking of that panel, I want to say at least as far as because I actually paid attention when I was reading through this on the in the um, Superman archive book. I want to say as far as um, what was reprinted in Superman that this is the first time you actually see the bullets bounce off of Superman. But they actually went to the pain of drawing the the ricocheting. Right, bullets. right. I mean, usually you see the gun with the smoke coming out to indicate it's been shot, but you don't actually see the bullet anywhere. I want to say this is the first time you actually see it bounce off. You actually see them bounce off. That's I could cool. be mistaken, but I, from what I've, I mean, there might be something in action that I haven't seen, but which you would know better than I would. But um, as far as what had been reprinted in Superman up until this point, this was the first time. I have not necessarily been looking for that, but at the same time, I haven't noticed it either. And I, it's one of those things I do sometimes look for when I'm looking at images of him getting shot is, are the bullets bouncing off? I do sometimes look at that, and I haven't noticed it being done yet. So you may be right that that is the first time that they've gone through that trouble to do that. We were talking about the dirigible earlier, and that whole episode of him attacking a dirigible and tearing it to pieces is just a one day of strip. It, it's absolutely disconnected from everything else in the story. Like, you know, he blows up the munitions factory and then skip over the dirigible and the, the thugs are reporting into the weapons guy. So it's just, you know, let's have Superman kill a bunch of people in the dirigible. <laughs> and that's that's going to be our strip for the day. And moving I, on. I love time. how you say that, by the way. <laughs> I'm not kidding either. The way you say dirigible. <laughs> yeah. So it, what does this do for Superman's death count? Should we assume there were 30 people in there? I was actually wondering that. I, when I got to Superman 2, I was going to actually go through the problem of doing some research on Wiki and seeing what the crew of a dirigible was, which I haven't done yet. But uh, we can say 30, which, um, you know, that would make it 36 people that he's killed, which is kind of crazy. I'll go with that. Does that mean I'm 37? 
<laughs> in a row? 37. My Superman killed 37 guys. <laughs> that makes me laugh. <laughs> I have a feeling there's a reference here that I'm not getting. <laughs> yeah, I think squirts. I haven't seen. <gasps> <sighs> uh, I'm what not. The? I, the, the one thing I'm not going to do here is go. You haven't seen Clerks. I'm going to go. You haven't seen Clerks. I there want to see it. I haven't seen it yet, and I see I, it. I, I, just, I know that I should have seen it by now. Because there's movies I haven't seen yet that people are like, "Well, haven't you seen that yet?" But uh, yeah, I, I will. I will wholeheartedly suggest seeing Clerks. You haven't seen Eight Heads in a Duffel Bag. No one has seen eight heads in a duffel bag. <laughs> Not even the people that were in the film. I have a copy on VHS. It cost I didn't me even know. Cents. I didn't even know it was the actual title. I thought you were being facetious. It's a Joe Pesci movie. It's a Joe Pesci movie. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I remember seeing commercials for it. <laughs> it's horrible, but it was worth getting for fifty cents just to say that I have a copy of Eight Heads in a Duffel Bag. Nice. Well, I do believe this brings us to the end of May 1939. I want to thank you guys for being on the show with me. It is a little bit late, but thank you all so much for being here to, to talk some Superman with me. It just kind of kind of put a, a commemoration around the launching of his series, uh, his own self-titled series that would last for so long. Well, thanks for having me. Thank you. Uh, oh, and I uh, appreciate it. And uh, by the way, I, I'm just randomly looking up on Wikipedia about a dirigible, and I don't. So the it, the number, size of the crew can vary, but they've got on here at least one that had up to 83 people on it. Oh wow! In a row? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, in a row. So they can have a lot of people. That's a lot of people that Superman just wiped out for a random day in the newspaper strips. Yes. Well, just to recap where uh, all of my guests can be found, if you like their opinions and like their sweet, dulcet tones, uh, Michael and Jeffrey <laughs> are on <laughs> From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast at the Superman Podcast Network, which is www.fortressofbailey2.com slash Superman Podcast Network, and also at supermanhomepage.com. They have a. Link. I, I would say more importantly, supermanhomepage.com. Very yeah, that's that's probably true. <laughs> it's kind of the big one. Yeah, I say probably like I'm judging you know what your show should be. Yeah, so yeah, Superman Homepage presents their podcast and, and supports them wholeheartedly. So if you go to supermanhomepage.com, you can either do a search or in the uh, menu of links across the top in favorites, you'll see uh, a link for it there. Also, Michael and Jeffrey both write reviews on there for different comics. You can find them on that website. Cayman Stoll, who has had to leave, he is on the Superman video podcast at www.youtube.com slash user slash Stowcam, S-T-O-W-E-K-A-M. And my friend Charlie here, Niemeyer, has the Superman in the Bronze Age podcast at Superman in the Bronze Age. Blogspot.com. And if you want to send your thoughts and comments about the issues or about our responses to the issues, you can do so at Golden Age Superman at gmail.com 
or by visiting the show's website at goldenagesuperman.libson.com and leaving comments on the episode postings there. You will also be able to download the episodes from that site, and there is a link to our Facebook page, which you can like to receive updates about the show whenever new episodes are available. And you can also subscribe to the show through iTunes and leave reviews there. I'm always very, very appreciative for every individual review that comes up. So thank you very much for doing that. There's been a large number of responses to this show, and I'm always humbled and flattered. And until next time, Golden Age Superman is a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network at www.fortressofbailytude.com slash supermanpodcastnetwork. My name is John Wilson. Thank you for listening to Golden Age Superman. Good night. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's supermanhomepage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. Supermanhomepage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. Supermanhomepage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the Man of Steel and more. Supermanhomepage.com